Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Steve Weber. He's a professor and faculty director of the University of California, Berkeley's Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. It was established in 2015 as a research and collaboration hub to examine what the future of cybersecurity could mean for human beings, machines, and the societies that will depend on both. But first, we're going to try a new segment, which is where Sarah and I do a check-in about some of the more interesting things that we're seeing and learning. So, Sarah, since we last spoke a month ago, what's something interesting that you've been doing? Well, I actually had a really interesting conversation with a few people to try to answer the question of how much is a security flaw worth, which is a pretty interesting process now that bug bounty programs for companies paying hackers to find flaws in these kinds of systems and get some money in return are getting even more popular. So how does it work? Well, so with programs like HackerOne and Bug Crowd Run, for instance, they partner with the companies and they have these sites that hackers can access and see, you know, who has programs that would allow them to hack these systems and get some money or prizes or really whatever they're offering. And once they submit these reports, they go to the company and the company is responsible for deciding how much these bugs are actually worth in dollar amounts. So I looked at Yahoo's bug bounty program and they decided decide whether a flaw that a hacker found is worth either a t-shirt or some sort of Yahoo branded swag or... That doesn't seem very incentivized. Sorry, Yahoo, but, you know, a (laughs) t-shirt, I mean... Well, the other part is it could be worth up to $15,000. A little bit more, okay. That's pretty good. But it's, it's an interesting process because only the company is in a real position to decide how much the bug is worth because only they know, so they say, how severe a bug actually is to them personally because that requires this kind of inside knowledge of what they're systems are. That seems the incentives are a little bit skewed then, right? Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, you have these programs that are getting more popular and there's more opportunities than ever before for hackers to hack things and make money. So a lot of people say that's great. On the other hand, as these programs become more widespread and more professional, and some of them are a few years in the making, there is this opacity, I guess, that goes on where between the time that the hacker submits the report and the time that they find out what they're getting, there's room for disappointment. And that's actually what happened in recent weeks where somebody found a flaw that affected uh, Polyvor, which is not a core Yahoo property, but it's the fashion networking site that they acquired. And the researcher thought that it was very severe and he only got $2,000 and he was pretty upset. So that's where the inspiration for the story came from. And how about the government side of this? There's been announcements of a, the Pentagon creating its own equivalent program. Do you think they're going to see the same problem? That'll be an interesting case because the Pentagon program, for instance, is invitation only. So they've already vetted these hackers. And I'll be interested to see how that program evolves you know, as it continues. And I think with those, there might be some even more clear rules evolve because it is a government program versus a company, but we're really going to have to see how that goes. It'll be interesting to see also if because it's uh, so transparent, does it set a market rate in some way, shape or form too? Yeah. The question of should these things be standardized across the board in private companies is an interesting one that I think a lot of companies are, are wrestling with. You know, How transparent can you be with while still allowing yourself the flexibility? If something is really minimal, something that the team already knew about within the company that 
then maybe they would just give you some swag if it's not, you know, thanks for trying, we appreciate the effort. And if it's something that affects potentially millions of users, that could be much more valuable to them. So I think it will be interesting to see how companies try to standardize this or at least provide the transparency so that hackers stay interested and that this becomes more of a professional thing. But at the same time, you know, Someone at Yahoo, the person who runs their bug bounty program, Doug DePerry, he told me that it's more of an art than a science. And mm. it's interesting to see how that art is not really that easy to explain, even to the researchers who are finding these flaws. So that will be you know, something to watch. So what about you, Peter? What are you working on? What are you talking about? The two things that jump out, one is uh, utterly self-promotional. The paperback version of my Ghost Sleep book is uh, coming out um, right now as we're speaking okay. in late May. Nice. Uh, so Perfect please check that out. Summer reading. Yeah, if you're looking for summer reading and what a cyber war might actually look like. Um, but I had a really interesting experience, uh, somewhat related, but a little bit different, where um, I went to uh, speak on cybersecurity with the folks who work on maritime issues. Uh, so shipping companies, port authorities, and the like. And it was fascinating to me because on one hand, when we talk about critical infrastructure, it almost always comes back to some kind of discussion of usually the power grid, or mm. occasionally it might be uh, something financial network or um, airlines. And yet, when we look at this space of shipping, there's sort of this combination of things going on. Um, one, they have clear cybersecurity challenges. Um, there's a whole sort of list of reasons we can talk about a little bit of why that is. Uh, but the other thing that stands out about it is that unlike the discussions of um, in other areas of critical infrastructure, we actually have a pretty uh, good means of figuring out what would be the cost if there was some kind of interruption of uh, service. Uh, and by that, I mean, we know, for example, when a port is shut down, um, what would happen because that's actually happened through non-cyber means. So, you know, a yeah. while back we had a labor strike at the Long Beach uh, port and that caused uh, just a day of that port being shut down caused uh, about $20 billion worth of economic damages. So it, it, one, we can start to put some numbers on things. Two, actually huge risks here. So it was really interesting, um, but there's a lot of factors that drive greater cybersecurity challenges for them. So what are some of the security threats that these places face? Well, you know, one is just how quickly um, this entire field has become uh, digital. So it's it's a field, you know, when you say the maritime industry, uh, it's defined by anything that touches water, you know, so it's right. basically, a uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot of things. And so, you know, whether it's on the Great Lakes or at sea, um, but now every one of those things, whether it is a ship itself to a port facility, they're all now digital and to, you know, the simply put the crew on board. And so it's becoming more and more digital. In fact, they're driving towards automating almost everything that they can. So there's these port facilities that are becoming almost completely robotic to Rolls-Royce, for example, has a plan to turn huge merchant ships entirely robotic over the next five, 10 years. But they... You know, Are they thinking about security when they're doing all of this digitization? Therein lies the rub. So okay. they have some of the same uh, challenges that any other kind of business does. They they hold massive amounts of uh, information about themselves, about their clients, about their employees. Um, so people may go after that. 
There's also the fact that um, they're holders of information that may be useful in some other way. So for example, we've already seen examples of um, one company's content management uh, system got hacked mm -hmm. and that was used by hijackers, not cyber hijackers, but at sea pirates to basically when they seize the ship, they didn't, you know, take the ship back to Somalia and hold it ransom the way they usually do. In this case, they seize the ship, they go through the ship, find a specific pallet on the ship by the barcode, and then crack open the barcode, and inside they find millions of dollars worth of diamonds. And so everyone's like, well, how did they know out of this ship where the diamonds were? Because they hacked the shipping company. We had another case of um, in Amsterdam, uh, smugglers were um, hacking pen codes to use it as a way to get into pallets that they'd hidden drugs into before the truck drivers who were from the fruit company could get the pallet. So we're seeing this kind of combination of classic crime and new crime. Um, one of the other things, though, that's that's driving it is that uh, cybersecurity has um, uh, particularly issues that play out in the maritime industry where um, the software that they use is uh, you know all new, but the hardware is something that they plan on using for decades. You know, to put it more bluntly, they want to use a ship for you know generations in terms of human lifetime, and yet the ships are loaded up with you know things like Windows XP, um, and you know they've got yeah, so they, they've got kind of this <laughs> this disconnect of the hardware and the software. You also have you know a final challenge in all of this is the. Um, then we see this in so many other domains, the low awareness of cybersecurity among the key stakeholders and sort of a lack of clarity of who's in charge. So for the maritime industry, they're dealing with everything from global governance to national governments. Um, and then you have this sort of, you know, is it where the shipping company is registered or is it where it's located to then at the state and local level? So to me, it was you know kind of fascinating because I'd never um, I hadn't been thinking about the connection of these two fields. And yet it's this huge wrinkle when it comes to uh, cybersecurity and critical infrastructure. And who is watching for the security issues on this? Is there any agency or government or who is is there anybody yet again we have uh <laughs> these problems that play out so is it just falling through the cracks of kind of the critical infrastructure areas or is it something else entirely it's changing so um there when you think about port security when you think about maritime security uh essentially the the responsible players at the you know it plays out you have some of them are handled at the state and local level part of the problem here for example is who runs the ports well in some cases it's companies that run the ports in other cases it's a consortium in other cases it's the city government that owns it in other cases it's the federal government that owns it so each one of them's dealing with it differently um the coast guard for a long time had no authority over it. They could come in and tell you, you know, this is what you, you need to have for um, the kind of lifeboats that you need on the ship to these are the sort of things you need in your port, you know, to deal with fire or whatever. Cybersecurity, not so much. There's also kind of a personal background thing here. The security people that they tend to hire uh, tend to be um, either uh, with an FBI background uh, or a local police background. So as one of them put it to me, you know, they're interested more in um, fences and cameras than the cybersecurity side. So you can see a lot of parallels with the other areas. 
the what's and then of course this didn't even get into the global part of it so you have this you know think about if you've ever been on a cruise ship you may be an american on that cruise ship that cruise ship may be stopping in miami but it says on the back of it liberia and so then you get sort of this you know yeah. disconnect of who at, at a national level is in charge so like in every other field the companies are trying to come together they're trying to create certain um and now we get into sort of you know what to call it is it standards is it things to aim for how much of it should be required all the things that play out in other realms this is just another industry that's moving into this a little bit uh after maybe what you saw in the financial sector mm -hmm. but the consequences of them not getting it right could be much bigger than you know the things that get all the attention like the power grid and it's probably not something that most people are thinking about when they're getting on a boat is how cyber secure their vessel is so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out as well well, so next up, we have Steve Weber. He's a professor at UC Berkeley, who is the director of its Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. So, Steve, thanks for joining us. The program you lead just completed a massive project looking at what the Internet and cybersecurity could look like in 2020 and beyond. Tell us about the project and how it came to be. Well, Peter, you're right to say it was a massive project. We tried to scale it uh, and bound it in a way that would make it reasonable. Basically, what we did was pull together a multidisciplinary group um, of people from the university research community, from the private sector, from the government sector, from companies around here, and we sort of brought them together in a way that we thought would allow them to bounce off what they know, um, but instead to focus on what could be different going forward. And the idea here was to try to create some th synthetic views of how the world of cybersecurity or the landscape, if you want to think about it that way, could look really different just a few years ahead of us. I mean, I think everybody who works in this world knows that things are moving really, really fast. Um, and many of us feel that we're so busy trying to catch up to the present that we never get to step back and ask ourselves, what could really be different four or five years out? So that was what the kind of core um, uh, effort here was all about. And uh, I think mainly because of the contributions of the people we were able to um, engage in that effort, um, that we created something that I hope will be useful to people. So that date, 2020, four or five years out as you framed it, what was, was there other than it's a nice round date, yeah. why choose that? Why, you know, not 10 years out? Why not two years out? Um, what, yeah. why center on that? Well, what we were trying to do, Peter, was essentially, um, deal with the needs of various constituencies. If we were um, doing um, a big strategic planning process or if we were trying to write a script for a science fiction film, um, which in some ways uh, are similar kinds of efforts, four years would be way, way, way too close. Um, but on the other hand, if you're trying to inform people's research agendas here at, at, the, at the university, or if you're trying to get the attention of people who are thinking about policy, Actually, that seems like a long way away. So um, ideally, we would have liked to have actually taken these scenarios even further out. But I think the first and foremost thing we needed to do was to make sure that the results of this were going to be useful to people who have to make decisions right now. So we think of it as a planning process that isn't really about the future. It's really about generating different perspectives on where we are right now and what we need to do in the next few months or the next year to prepare ourselves better for what's going to be coming down the pike three or four years after that. I want to hone in on that. So why 
go after multiple different scenarios rather than making specific predictions, which is often the case in these kind of projects. Yeah, so this is something that um, I've learned over the years in doing scenario thinking in all sorts of different kinds of environments, government, business, nonprofit, university. Um, I think it's fair to say that this is a sufficiently complex realm and it is in sufficiently quick motion. I mean, everybody feels just how fast this landscape is changing that um, the one thing we know about a prediction is that it's certain to be wrong. And so the idea of using multiple scenarios is to just sort of own that fact and acknowledge that we can't actually predict the future, but if we can lay out almost like a kind of a landscape of possibilities um, of what that future might look like and use that landscape to almost imagine like a, a, a circle of possibilities and if we can lay out four or five spots on the circumference of that circle, then we can start to see a better picture of that possibility space. And here's the fundamental thing. Um, ultimately, all of these scenarios are going to be wrong per se if you see them as predictions. But elements of all of them will probably come true in a different, in some particular kind of mix, as well as other things. The point is not to get it right. The point is to arm people with ideas so that they can kind of rehearse. Like in a world like that, what would we need to be able to do and how would we know if it was coming? And I think from a decision perspective and from a policy perspective, from a strategy perspective, that's actually a much, much more useful way to think about the problem. So give us the quick uh, elevator pitch or, you know, podcast version of the scenarios and in particular, which one scares you the most? Well, we developed five scenarios um, that sort of highlight different elements of how we think the future of cybersecurity might evolve. Uh, one of them is about an extraordinary growth in predictive capacity that makes it actually easier to predict the behaviors of specific individuals than it is to predict the behaviors of groups. And that's kind of a twist from where we are today. Another one is about um, really just the implications of something that we can already see emerging, which is a sense that like we go onto the internet and what if our default position became we assume that everything is going to get stolen rather than the way people behave today, most people actually, not the, the people who really are aware of the cybersecurity landscape, but most folks behave as if, well, you know, we're probably safe until we have a reason to believe we're not. What if that just flips at some point in the next couple of years? What would that portend? Um, I could talk about the other ones, but let me tell you about the one that scares me the most personally. We tried to imagine what would happen in a world where the market valuations of some of today's most interesting and richest companies, which are most interesting and richest precisely because of all the data sets that they own and are creating, if they were to get caught in a severe market downdraft, a recession, a market crash, or something like that. And we asked ourselves, um, as we've seen in previous kinds of market crashes with technology companies in the last 20 years. So what would they do um, if Facebook, Google, Uber, and I don't mean to pick on any particular firms, I'm just sort of highlighting companies that are valued more on the basis of the data they collect than anything else. What would they do if, if the market crashed and they simply had to raise cash in order to survive? And what really scares me is that the most obvious recoverable asset that they would have to sell in order to raise cash 
are those data sets? And that's an interesting twist because today we spend so much time and energy and the companies spend so much time and energy protecting those data sets from being stolen. In this scenario, they're all sitting out there on a market ready to be bought. And that's so a very, some, very different dynamic. What are some things that could happen if um, these were suddenly on the market? And what are some risks that that could pose for consumers if this was the, the future and there was a big market crash? Yeah, so I'll just ask you to imagine, you know, so uh, uh, think about the data set that any of these companies has about who you are, what you do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, today, most people are kind of obsessed with privacy regulation that would constrain what that company can and can't do with that data. Now, let's fast forward to a future where that data is now available for sale to anyone. Those agreements that you signed even as terms of service, even if you think you can enforce them today, you can't enforce them once they escape the ownership of that country, excuse me, company. And so how would you feel about all that data being sold to someone that you don't know, uh, being sold to a, a foreign government, um, being sold to a criminal organization rather than being stolen? Who, what do you do about that? And how do you manage the vulnerability that would come with that? Um, it's a question for individuals. I think interestingly, in, in, in the way we've so, so tried to think it through, it's also a really interesting question for governments. Like, would the United States government allow those data sets from some of those large internet firms to be bought by a Chinese company? I mean, it's a, a, a sort of common question of foreign direct investment that we see in other industries, but how's it going to play out in the data world? I don't think anyone has really focused on that question yet, and I think we need to start focusing on it now. Yeah, and you mentioned another scenario where um, the assumption of insecurity was the new normal, as you called it. I think that yeah. that personally is a really fascinating idea that after so many years of headlines from the media um, about data breaches and just how everybody suddenly, you know, over over time becomes resigned to the idea that their data is being stolen or sold or broadcast. Um, do you see signs of this breach fatigue happening already? And what would it take to reach that kind of tipping point where the assumption goes from, well, maybe this will get taken in some sort of you know, one-off breach to it will definitely be stolen. Yeah, so I want you to imagine for a moment, think of the most um, paranoid people you know, um, who often in this environment are also the people who understand the cybersecurity environment the best. Uh, you know, it's one of these situations where the more you know, the more scared you are. How dare you insult our listeners that way? <laughs> I don't. I, I wouldn't call it paranoia. I might call it wisdom. Uh, but think about that kind of an attitude spreading to the general population. Most of us who sort of at the moment think of cybersecurity issues as somebody else's problem or maybe a kind of an annoyance or a tax. I mean, look, if somebody steals my credit card data, um, it's a hassle. It may cost me 50 bucks. Um, it may even cost me a little bit more than that if I don't have a uh, if I'm using my credit card in a place where it's not pit, uh, chip and pin. But it's not like an existential threat to most individuals. And I think in a world where that assumption changes and we start to believe that when we go on the internet, we're in a very, very dangerous neighborhood, just like, um, look, I grew up in New York in the 1970s. When you exited the subway, 
in Manhattan in the 1970s and you knew you were in a very, very dangerous neighborhood, your behavior really changed in that environment. And so how important is that kind of trust in digital systems? I mean, when you're talking big picture, commerce or daily life? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you, if you just sort of step back, it's absolutely essential. Um, and many people would say that trust is misplaced, but it's still present. And it is almost like the the grease that allows the system to function as it currently functions. When that trust flips to a default position of stolen unless proven otherwise, um, the whole internet economy changes in that regard. And people are going to act really differently and they're going to try to do different sorts of things. You know, one of the kind of things we experimented with um, thinking about how that would work, imagine as a response if you decided or maybe maybe the more accurate kind of or more likely scenario is your children decide that the way you're going to beat the criminals is just by making everything about you public. Like if it's all public, if it's all out there, nobody can steal it. Well, like when I publish my social security number online and give it away to everybody for free, then the things that I can do with that social security number really change. But more importantly, I've essentially forced the US government to come up with a different way to identify me. And that's going to create a whole new interesting set of challenges and problems, maybe some opportunities too. But it's not a world that I think any of us really have a view of like, what would it be like to actually live in that world? It's going to be really, really different if we go there. So when you're looking across these different scenarios, what's one thing that you believe the White House and Congress could do now to better prepare for these various challenges that might play out in 2020? You've hit on exactly the right way to think about the problem, Peter. I mean, uh, again, we 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 don't believe these are predictions. We believe they sketch out a possibility space, and so we like to look across the scenarios and ask ourselves, what are the common lessons that appear in all of them that suggest that regardless of what happens in the future, you got to do the following things. And in the report that we published, we have ten such arguments. I'm not going to lay them out all for you here now. Um, I'll simply uh, make one of them, which is uh, goes back to this issue about this data bubble or um, economic bubble of data. I think um, government and business today need to shift a great deal of focus towards thinking about the structure and regulation of data or markets for data or data markets because we have them today functioning mainly in the form of advertising markets or, or data that supports advertising markets, we think it's very likely that that's going to become a much, much, much broader realm of, uh, of action, both licit and illicit, for legal and criminal behavior. And I don't want to have to spend 10 years trying to catch up to the way those markets operate, the way we have constantly had to do with financial markets. Like, I don't want to have to go through 2007, 2008 in order to get Sarbanes-Oxley and other kinds of reforms on the other side. And I think that's a mistake. I think Sarbanes-Oxley came from a previous market crash, but forgive me for that. Um, I think we got to get ahead of those data markets, make sure they operate in a clear, transparent, and clean and fair way um, because they are going to become a big piece of what cybersecurity looks like going forward. And what is one thing that companies should be thinking about now? Do they have any kind of responsibility to make security, for instance, the default for consumers to avoid the kind of fates that you outline in some of your reports? Or, um, or, and how big of a role do consumers in turn also play in this? 
Yeah, well, um, so consumers, I mean, everybody's got to step up to the plate on this issue, and we know that to be the case. Um, I think there's been, uh, if you kind of look at it overall, a bit of a shell game going on and a little bit of free rider dynamics in the sense that consumers uh, writ broadly sort of pass the responsibility over to governments and companies and say, you guys find a way to fix this problem. And companies will pass the responsibility over to governments and consumers and say, you guys got to fix this problem and so on and so forth. Um, I don't think yet anyone has really identified the right nexus for those three parties to come to the table together. And we all talk the talk in that regard. But you know, if you think about what happened, for example, in the winter and spring of 2016 around the iPhone encryption issue, um, actually, the, those three parties were, were sort of driving each other further apart. And um, I think that's a really dysfunctional place to be. Uh, I think that crises like that sometimes pull people together and allow them to get a shared sense of responsibility. But boy, we just didn't see that in the end of 2016. So we're hoping that um, by putting some of these potential future scenarios and threats out on the table, we can get people to start talking about this stuff before the crisis. And if they do it before the crisis, maybe they have a better shot of figuring out how do we actually pitch in to make this situation not quite so dangerous for all of us. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you're out on the West Coast and we're here in Washington. And you mentioned these flashpoints between the tech community and the policy circles on encryption, as you mentioned, and, you know, the Snowden leaks and other things in recent years. But how do you think that the East-West relationship will actually evolve? And what is something that you think might be able to heal these rifts? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you you, you put your finger on it, Sarah, the, um, you know, my experience moving back and forth between the West and the East Coast is that um, over the last couple of years, the rift um, about fundamental beliefs, about what's going on, what the nature of the problem is, what the risk is, and whose fault it is, those, those beliefs are, 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 are moving further apart rather than closer together. The rifts are growing larger. I mean, here at UC Berkeley, um, I think there's a general view that the risk to the data or the or, or privacy on this campus is actually the, the NSA poses a greater risk to the Berkeley campus than does say Russian criminal gangs or the Chinese government. I I personally don't share that view, but I think that that is a kind of deeply held view among many people here. And I think, you know, the speed of change and the reactivity to crisis is actually what's causing those rifts to get wider and wider because there's a there's this kind of urgent, you know, must do something attitude on all sides and naturally in that setting, you know, you want somebody else to be the one to do what needs to get done. So again, I I think that if we don't take the attitude of trying to get out ahead of the bad actors and sort of position ourselves so it's harder for them to split us apart then those rifts are going to get worse. And you know, I like to sometimes think of it this way. People talk about a collaborative moonshot, uh, and I think that's a nice image, except the moon wasn't a sentient actor trying to run away or escape or fool you. And what we're dealing with here are sentient actors that are going to do everything they can to make those rifts in the American population even more severe so that they can take advantage of those disagreements. And that's a determined adversary. The only way to work in, a, in an environment like that that I know of is to get ahead of them.
Huh. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, especially from the area where we're sitting over here on the East Coast. Um, <laughs> so I do want to ask you about another one of your scenarios that came up. We did an event uh, recently with Passcode in Berkeley on these scenarios, and the sensorium one really resonated, I think, with a lot of people. Maybe you could just walk us through the idea about what's going to happen with wearables and yeah. whether they are going to be able to track even more than they already are. Yes. So... Um, so in Sensorium, is scenario five, we um, we experimented with a kind of a phase shift in what it is that wearables do. So many of us have bought one or two of these wearable devices. Out here, my friends, most of them have five or six, um, and most of them are sitting in people's drawers. They don't use them for very long. And the reason that they don't use them for very long is because they're actually not that interesting. They track data about how many steps you took or, you know, maybe if you've got an advanced device in 2016, it's doing your heart rate or an Apple Watch or this sort of thing. Um, but that data, I don't know, it's, you know, unless you're a fitness freak, it's not really that interesting. And for most people, if that data were stolen by a government or a criminal organization, you know, maybe you wouldn't really care that much. Uh, so they know how many steps I took yesterday. Who cares? But the real sort of frontier of that kind of data collection is emerging right now to be indicators that when put together, so if we add your heart rate variability, how quickly you and how deeply you breathe, your galvanic skin resistance, and a few other things, we start to get a pretty close to accurate and increasingly granular assessment of what your emotional state is at any given moment. And that's a really interesting and really exciting and really scary thing. I mean, most people don't have a really good moment-to-moment -moment assessment of how they feel about something. Um, many of us at the end of the day would ask ourselves, God, you know, that was... I felt lousy today. I had a lousy day today. Why Why did I have a lousy day today? Like, what went wrong? And um, imagine if you had the data that could answer that question for you in a very precise, granular way. Like, it was that conversation over lunch with Sarah that just got under my skin and wouldn't go away. <laughs> but what do you Sorry, see the Steve. cybersecurity implications of that? Is it the idea that um, it's manipulation of it once you get access to that information? Yeah, so think about the, think about, you know, I'm, I'm sort of talking about all the great things I could do for myself. Now think about what that data looks like when it's in the hands of someone who wants to manipulate me when it's in the hands of someone who wants to sell me something, when it's the hand, in the hands of someone who wants me to get to do something, get me to do something that I otherwise might not want to do. I mean, Peter, look at it this way. How would you feel instead of stealing your money? Um, I make it such that you so much want to contribute to my cause that you've just written me a big fat check. That happens already. Um, <laughs> so this has been you know, utterly fascinating, and I think it's a great lead into our, the final question that we ask uh, all of our guests, um, but I'm going to put a twist on it, which is uh, we ask all of our guests, what is their favorite fictional depiction of the world of cybersecurity? Mm. And favorite can be they love it or they frankly love to hate it. But <laughs> you're going to get a two-parter, which is what's your favorite, but also what did you find most useful or most insightful as you're building these scenarios of the world of 2020? So in essence, yeah. what gets it right in 2020, which is different than something that you might enjoy? Yeah. So um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the question backwards, if that's okay with you. I think um, so much of our inspiration for doing this kind of work 
comes from the science fiction sector, which I think does an excellent job of showing people possibilities, not to, to, to convince them that they're true, but to get them to think, what would I do if I had to face a world like that? And I think for if you folks were at the event, uh, Walter Parks, one of the you know great, in my view, great science fiction thinkers and movie producers over the last 20, 25 years, done a number of these stories over time. Uh, he was the producer of Minority Report. And I think, you know, if you and think- And a previous of, cybersecurity podcast guest. Oh, great. Add. Yeah. Well, you know, Walter's fantastic. And I think he has a real sense of this notion that it doesn't so much matter if, say, in Minority Report- predictive policing does or does not re reach that level of intensity. It's a question of what would it feel like for people to live in that world and what would you want to do differently if you knew it was coming? And so I know that's um, alighting a little bit the question of what's the, what's the most important sort of inspiration. Um, but I think in general, the inspiration of telling people stories that have really clear, logical research-based claims behind them, but are told as narratives, is the way to get people to change their behavior. I mean, look, we have all seen the data about how insecure we are. We've all seen the graphs. And, and Sarah, you earlier used the phrase breach fatigue. Um, pick up any uh, assessment of Verizon publishes a breach report every year. Other companies do the same. And look at the numbers of breaches and your eyes sort of start to glaze over after a while. But the story about how an individual's life is changed, I think, can sometimes really bring the message home. And the message that, that I want to bring home, uh, and I don't think actually that any particular science fiction film or narrative has done this, is that um, when you look across the story and you think about how critical the internet has become to all of our lives, you don't see the security aspect of it yet as having that kind of existential presence in human imagination. I think that's going to change in the next couple of years. I think we're going to start talking about cybersecurity as if it's an existential challenge. It's more like the way we talk about climate change today. And when that happens, the whole game is going to look different because the kind of resources, the technology, the economics, the politics of this issue are going to start to be global and intensive in a way that we now see people thinking about climate. We have to get ready for that now. We have to take advantage of that so we get ahead of it in the way we have simply not gotten ahead of the climate issue. Great. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Steve for a great conversation. And if you want to find out more about the scenarios, visit cltc.berkeley.edu slash scenarios. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. And please subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score and Cold Killer. 
To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.